Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then, when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours and spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothing for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off of their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Last week, I introduced you to the first set of stories surrounding the cases involving children who were pictured in the 1993 Soul Asylum video for Runaway Train. Today, I'll continue to tell those stories. As you'll soon hear, the theme of cops not believing the families, a lack of information surrounding the cases, and some of the cases remaining unsolved continues. So if you're from the area being talked about, please pay extra attention and share with others. Because as always, someone knows something. New Year's Eve, 1987, Pottsville, Pennsylvania. 17-year-old John Francis Lango was a senior at Pottsville Area High School, which is in fact the school's actual name, not just a generalized statement. He dealt with typical teenage angst, but had several friends, was well-liked, earned decent grades, and enjoyed the oh-so-80s hobby of breakdancing. That evening, John and his girlfriend ended up having an argument. It's one probably everyone who's ever been in a relationship around the holidays has been part of. Where are we going to be spending New Year's Eve? Because they couldn't come to an agreement, they went their separate ways. John stayed home with his family, and he had invited a few friends over, and the underage drinking that was taking place soon led to chaos. David, one of John's friends, became belligerent, and something led to the police being called. According to a Facebook post regarding missing people, his brother Tim was quoted as saying, the entire police force came to arrest David. During the confusion, John said, screw this, I'm out of here, and left the home. 
Tim followed him down 2nd Street but couldn't catch up. He watched as John got into a car at Howard and 2nd Street by the Mahontago Street parking lot. Tim was only 10 years old at the time, so he was unable to recall the details of the vehicle, but he was the last person to see John. The clock struck 12, it was now 1988, and no one has seen John Lango since. His family does not believe he ran away, even though he did leave home on his own accord. Leaving because you're a little drunk and pissed off is different than running away. He didn't take any personal belongings with him, not even his prized Adidas shoes. Since that day, his social security number has not been used in any capacity. There are theories that he was in some sort of accident and the car went into some water or off the road and his body has simply never been recovered. Another theory, perhaps he was targeted by someone that saw a young man who was intoxicated and therefore vulnerable and they offered him a ride he would never return from. There is simply no telling. It's truly like he vanished into thin air. John was 17 years old when he went missing. He would now be 53. At the time, he was six foot one and 185 pounds. He was white with red hair, blue eyes, and he had a burn scar on his upper right arm. If you have any information about what happened to John Francis Lango on New Year's Eve, 1987, you are asked to contact Detective Dove with the Pottsville Police Department at 570-622-1234. I think of all the kids featured in the runaway train video, I remember Wilda May Benoit's face the most. She had thick, dark hair fluffed into bangs and a poofy side pony framing her lovely face, dangling earrings, dimples, and a bright smile. She looked so happy, like someone you'd want to be friends with because she was so cool. About 200 miles as the crow flies from New Orleans, Wilda lived in Creole, Louisiana. At some point in the days or perhaps hours before she went missing, she had injured her shoulder and it required surgery. After coming home, she remained on painkillers that had her slightly sedated. For unknown reasons, she was living with her aunt and uncle at the time. The 14-year-old lived a typical life. She liked going to the school's football games. She liked playing with makeup. On the night of the 23rd, she went to bed having returned home from the hospital following the surgery. Her uncle seeing her to her bedroom would be the last sighting of her. The next morning, it was assumed she had gone to work with her aunt, but she was nowhere to be found. By the afternoon, the police were called. At first, they of course labeled her as a runaway. They based this on her age, possible incapacitation from medication, and that a few pieces of her jewelry and clothing could not be accounted for. Her family was adamant that she had not left. Her mother's strongest argument was that her daughter was terrified of the dark, so there was no way she would have run off in the middle of the night. Everyone affiliated with Wilda's case was cleared. Some sightings were called in, but they were debunked. There's been no sign of her since that night. It wasn't until 2002 that her status was changed from endangered runaway to endangered missing. There are conflicting reports as to what she was wearing when she was last seen. One report says she was in black and white shorts and a green long sleeve shirt with navy at the bottom. Others say she was still in her hospital gown when she went to bed. Wilda could have been kidnapped from her home, lured by someone she knew, or disoriented from the medication and the procedure, which led to her walking out of the home. From there, she could have become lost, been injured, or, like John in the last story, she was seen as a vulnerable target or found herself in many of the surrounding bodies of water in that area. At the time, Wilda was just 14 years old, 5 feet tall and 100 pounds, her shoulder would have been freshly worked on and she would now have scarring. 
She was white but did present as Puerto Rican or a similar ethnicity. She had brown hair and blue eyes. If anyone has information about what happened to Wilda Benoit or her current whereabouts, you are asked to contact the Cameron Parish Sheriff's Office at 337-775-5111. Byron Page was a happy teenager who was excited about his future. On January 28, 1992, he spent the day driving the family car, their Volvo, all around L.A., His mother was with him as he was practicing driving for his upcoming driver's license test. And Josh, you can probably attest that if you can drive in Los Angeles, you can drive anywhere. Zoom, zoom. It's true. I'm one of the best drivers in the world. On the 29th, Byron took a trip he often did, taking the city bus to West Hollywood, riding 20 miles to a video music shop. I would assume something like a Tower Records. This trip was confirmed by a friend of his who saw him waiting at the bus stop. When his mother came home from work that evening, she was surprised and slightly concerned to find Byron wasn't home. His parents started driving around town looking for him. In his room, his mother found his phone book. Calling his friends, she learned about his trip to the store. By 7 p.m., the family had grown so concerned that they called the police. An officer documented their concerns and thankfully didn't dismiss the case as a runaway, But because Byron was 17, they told his parents there wouldn't be much they could do to help until 24 hours had passed. His mother said, in regard to having to wait, I am inclined to think there is not as much of an emergency if a 17-year-old is missing than if a 5-year-old is missing. The younger the child, the more of the emergency. Without help from the police, the family continued to drive around and made flyers to hand out across the city. His brother dropped out of school in San Diego to help the family with the search. There were never any concerns Byron had run away. His home life was good. He never mentioned having a desire to do so. His favorite clothes, money, and comic books were still in the home. Sightings were reported, but all were proven to be false. It wasn't until CNN requested an interview with Detective Harris that she finally entered his information into the NamUs database. Eventually, Byron's family had to go to his school and clear out his locker, a devastating experience. Then, his college acceptance letters started to roll in. He had been a great student, making the honor roll, having five semesters of perfect attendance, and his PSAT was in the top 6% of Black students, which earned him a college scholarship. Writing about his scholarship, Byron said, This pleased me and reaffirmed my belief that through hard work and dedication, one's goals can be achieved. That wasn't all Byron wrote. Wanting to eventually become a writer, he wrote an essay about being a comic critic. Another essay was about his ninth grade history teacher who, as he said, influenced my life greatly to pursue a career involving writing. Byron also loved sports. He had been playing soccer since he was in kindergarten, Trying out for football, he didn't care for how physical it was, so he went back to football. He wanted to be a YMCA camp counselor and to participate in a work program at LAX. He felt he had his whole life ahead of him, with the adventures of new jobs, new schools, and new experiences just waiting for him. Sadly, he would never get to fulfill any of those dreams. Byron Eric Page was last seen January 29, 1992. He was 17 years old his birthday being August 16, 1974. He is black and has black hair and brown eyes. At the time he was last seen, he was 5 foot 8, 160 pounds. He was wearing a blue and white jacket, a blue baseball cap, and black pants. 
If anyone has information regarding Byron Eric's whereabouts, you are asked to contact the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST or the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department at 323-890-5500. This next case is a complicated one. Andrea Bowman was last seen on Saturday, March 11, 1989. Her adopted father, Dennis, took his wife Brenda to work and came home, expecting to see his daughter doing her homework. Instead, he called the police to report that he came home and found Andrea packing a bag, implying she would be running away. She then stole $100 and was gone. Knowing she had run away, the police listed the 14-year-old as an endangered runaway and didn't do much to try and find her. Born Alexis Miranda Badger on June 23, 1974, had a difficult life. She was born in New Orleans, and at nine months old, her birth mother, Kathy Turkinian, placed her for adoption. She would spend the next 12 months in foster care before being adopted by Dennis and Brenda Bowman. Growing up, Brenda would say Andrea was a difficult and rebellious child who did not do her homework. To help with the schoolwork, they had Andrea working with a college tutor. When she was a teenager, her parents informed her of her adoption status, which they claimed she was very distraught over. Early in the school year of 1988, Andrea started to refuse to go home after school. Concerned, staff involved the police. It was then that she shared that her father, Dennis, had been molesting her. Taking her home, a truancy officer and school counselor confronted the couple. They both denied the allegations. They blamed her discovery of her adoption as for why she was acting out. On another occasion, Andrea was brave enough to talk to her mother about the sexual molestation that was taking place. Brenda responded with, quote, I looked at her and I told her, that's a lie and you know it. Brenda had been at work the day she disappeared, buying the story her husband told her about the packing and stealing. It wasn't long after the accusations were made that Dennis decided to move his wife and child into a trailer in a rural area of Holland, Michigan. Holland is located about 200 miles to the west of Detroit. Not long after that, Andrea disappeared. Again, Dennis had Brenda move with him to another home. As time went on, Brenda would call in to report sightings of her daughter, but none of them were ever confirmed. Who freaking moves when your kid goes missing? That's like years before people do that. Anytime someone, when it's the wife, when it's the kid, why would you, why, why is that your first thing to, well. But like with the kid, you want, you assume they're going to come home at some point. Yeah. Or like there. we want to leave their room how they left it, or we want to be here because it's where we had the memories. Or I think it would be one thing if something tragic happened in the home sure. and you'd be like, our, our child was killed in the home and we want to get out of here. That's totally different. But yeah, missing, it's like, also, fuck you, mom, for not listening. Yeah. The years went on. Andrea was on the list of runaways from Holland, Michigan. Her face came across screens around the country with the music video, but no one had seen her, and it seemed no one cared about her location or well-being. Having the cops question Dennis about molesting his daughter wasn't his first run-in with the police. On September 16, 1980, Dennis Bauman was in a Virginia court taking a plea deal. Well, his lawyer took the deal because he said Dennis was still in the military and had been required to attend a two-week summer training as part of the Navy Reserve status. In the plea, Dennis admitted to finding a 19-year-old girl riding her bike. Holding her at gunpoint, he forced her to walk into the nearby woods. 
He was attempting to rape the girl when a passing driver spotted them and caught Dennis's attention, allowing for the teenager to run away. Dennis fired two shots. Thankfully, no one was hurt. He pled guilty, and though he was sentenced to five to ten years, he served just shy of five. Five to ten years for what he probably would have done? Mm-hmm. Now, tell me they reopened the case a little differently? Uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> it had taken the prosecution two years to even charge Dennis and to get to court with that case. Five days after pleading guilty to those charges, another crime was committed in the same area that would go unsolved for 40 years. 25-year-old Kathleen Mary O'Brien Doyle was an aspiring author. In a journal, she wrote, I will not likely write so that anyone looking over my shoulder would neither raise an eyebrow nor really raise too much interest. Married just nine months to Lieutenant Stephen Doyle, she was living the Navy housewife life. In the city of Norfolk, she was surrounded by fellow military families. Keeping her company while her husband was away on the USS Eisenhower was her tabby cat, Ike. Her friendships weren't limited to felines. She was also close to Vivian Mahoney. To comfort her friend as her husband had been out to sea since April, Vivian went to Kathleen's home on September 9, 1980. Hanging out from around 7.30 to 9.30, the gals chatted, had some wine. There was nothing out of the ordinary. The following day, Vivian tried to call Kathleen. There was no answer. She called again, then again, never getting an answer. This was out of the ordinary. On September 11th, both Vivian and her husband James tried calling Kathleen. Again, neither one could get a hold of her. Getting worried, the couple went by her house to do a welfare check around noon. They had good reason to worry. Just three weeks prior, another young military wife, Susan Lynn Woodruff, just 20 years old, was home alone when her husband Jerry was stationed away on the USS Kennedy in France. Conducting a welfare check when friends hadn't heard from her, her body was found in the bathtub. She had been raped, sodomized, and the house was burglarized. On September 10th, the day Vivian couldn't reach Kathleen, Rodney Robinson, 23 years old, was arrested for the capital murder and sexual charges for the killing of Susan. He was her neighbor and had taken advantage of Susan's husband being away. Could the same man be responsible for whatever was going on with Kathleen? Was there just another madman out there who was also targeting military wives? Vivian and James arrived at Kathleen's. She approached the door. Her heart sank when she saw the outdoor light was on, there was mail in the box, and two newspapers laid on the doorstep. Reaching for the screen door, she was concerned when it was unlocked. Kathleen never left it unlocked. Vivian peeked in the window, and her fears only grew— the two wine glasses they had been drinking from on the 9th remained on the table where they had left them. Hoping Kathleen would come to the door, Vivian knocked. In doing so, she pushed the already ajar door open. Cautiously entering the home, Vivian looked around and realized everything was exactly as she had left it two days before. Making her way to the bedroom, she found Kathleen's body on the floor. She ran back to the front door, screaming for James, fearful her friend was dead. James ran inside to see if he could help. Getting into the bedroom, it was clear there had been a struggle. The mattress was off the bed frame. Everything was in disarray. Finding Kathleen on the floor, he saw a variety of cords wrapped around her. There was dried blood around her body. Checking her wrist for a pulse, he confirmed Vivian's worst fears. Her friend Kathleen was dead. Not wanting to disturb what was clearly a crime scene, he left the bedroom. He told his wife to call for help. 
when she tried, she was unable to get the phone to work. James took the phone and dialed 911. It wasn't that the lines were cut, but the mouthpiece of the phone had been removed, making it impossible to communicate with anyone on the other line. James then ran to a neighbor and had them call. Police and fire arrived at 9432 Gamby Street almost immediately, and they declared Kathleen Doyle dead. She was naked, her hands were bound behind her back, she was gagged, and an electrical cord was wrapped around her neck. She had been stabbed once in the back. White fluid between her legs led the ME to believe there had been a sexual element to her murder. Further examination revealed a single stab wound to the left side of her chest. Kathleen was taken in for autopsy. Being in full rigor mortis and cold to the touch, the ME decided she had been dead for many hours, if not days. The conclusion was, death resulted from homicidal causes. The decedent showed signs of sexual abuse with punching and blunt force injuries to the face, mouth, kicking to the stomach, being tied up, gagged and strangled with an electrical cord, and stabbed in the back with a separate stab in the front, which failed to penetrate due to the blade impaling on the rib, which was fractured. Swabs showed evidence of semen. Her official cause of death was listed as mechanical asphyxia by strangulation and stab wounds with internal hemorrhage. Basically, both things could have been fatal, so there was no telling which injury was the final cause of death. The house was then processed as a crime scene. While they took some items, like a bedsheet, as evidence, they didn't find much else. A rolling pin was found in the bedroom next to Kathleen. A few latent fingerprints were discovered in the bedroom and the living room. Of those, only one couldn't be connected to the Doyles or Mahoney's. That one unmatched print was recovered from an envelope in the bedroom. There was no sign of forced entry. All of the lower-level windows were closed, but nine windows were documented as being unlocked. At one of the back windows, a piece of wood was found leaning on the house under a spare bedroom window. This led investigators to believe the perpetrator used the log and the utility meter as steps to get into the back window. Creepy. Very. What wasn't found was the knife or any other weapon involved in stabbing Kathleen or the mouthpiece from the phone. Trying to narrow down the time of death, detectives started with the newspapers. They were dated the 10th and 11th. Questioning the paperboy, he said he had tried to get his money from Kathleen on one of those days. He knocked but got no answer. Checking the phone records, Kathleen had made a long-distance call to a friend at 9.32 p.m. When her mother called the house at 11 p.m., there was no answer. Without an obvious lead, investigators started looking into the people surrounding Kathleen. They interviewed all of her family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, other members of the Navy. Those conversations led to nothing. No one had a motive. No one had anything against her. Even the incident with Susan's murder had been a one-off. For four years, detectives questioned every perpetrator of similar crimes in the surrounding areas. Nothing came of it. Through the investigation, they had collected sperm, but this was 1980. DNA was not what it is today. November 1984 saw charges brought to two men for Kathleen's murder. Hoping to get a confession, detectives from Virginia went to Texas, where Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole were famously and rampantly confessing to dozens and dozens of murders. Taking credit for killing Kathleen, they were charged with her murder. As you may know, it didn't take long for people to hear about all of those confessions and realize those two men couldn't have committed some of the crimes because there was proof of them being in totally different locations. Compiling a timeline for Henry and Otis, it was realized that they could not have killed Kathleen. 
As part of the confession, Henry said Otis's niece and nephew had been with them in Virginia. The report found those children had been in school the week in question. It was also proven that Henry had been selling 97 pounds of scrap metal in Jacksonville, Florida, on September 10th. Detectives were now back to square one. No suspects, no leads. It was up to Kathleen's family to keep her case going. Her father, USN Captain John O'Brien, was a huge advocate for her. In 1995, given that the only suspects had been cleared, a full investigation into her murder was relaunched. Detectives were once again tasked with talking to that long list of all known acquaintances and relatives. This time, it wasn't for an interview. It was to acquire DNA samples. With DNA coming a long way in those 15 years, investigators were able to officially clear Henry and Otis as their DNA did not match that of the sperm recovered. Even though the process of using DNA had grown immensely, it was still in its infancy and there wasn't a plethora of databases with other samples to test. It was more of a get a sample and test against it situation. The case went quiet. In 2001, all evidence was again reviewed. That was when it was realized that the bedsheet that had been taken from the crime scene was stored properly but had never been tested for traces of DNA. In doing so, additional sperm and a DNA profile was found on the sheet. Through the early 2000s, NCIS became involved and continued to search for a DNA match while revisiting any potential leads. In the 2010s, there was finally a DNA database and the samples were put into it. But again, no matches. During all these years, Dennis had been on the radar of Michigan police for Andrea's disappearance. They had their hunches he had been involved, but there was no evidence. Making it even more difficult, there was no body. She had simply run away from an abusive father and went to start a new life. Even without those things, there had been search warrants executed. Dennis and others had been interviewed. His property had been searched. All of those exercises had been fruitless, but detectives never gave up on the idea that he had been to blame for whatever happened to his daughter. DNA had now come to be what we know of it today. Hoping to find a genealogical match to their killer, detectives sent the samples from the bedsheet to the superheroes of DNA, Parabon Labs. They were able to create a description and a list of over 30 possible family connections, but they did not come up with a name. In 2018, two detectives, one from Michigan and one from Virginia, crossed paths at a cold case homicide conference in Virginia. Detectives from Virginia got to talking with detectives from Michigan. Speaking about their Parabon experience, there was a mention of Dennis Bauman being on the list of possible kin. Michigan detectives were well aware of that name, and they were able to help Virginia out. They had a sample of his DNA. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that, that they just happened to cross paths at this event. That's why so those events cool. exist. Yeah. On November 20th, 2019, an arrest warrant was issued for the now 70-year-old Dennis Bauman as his DNA was a match for what was recovered from Kathleen's murder scene. Two days later, in Algean County, Michigan, Dennis Bauman was arrested for her murder. In February, he was extradited to Virginia. Another swab was taken for testing. Again, he was a match to both the bedsheet and vaginal swabs the odds being 1 in 7.2 billion, or the entire population of the Earth. Is he still married to her mom? I do believe so at the what time. What in the world? Well, this is this was the match for the military woman that was home alone. Mm-hmm. And 
still like yeah you know your guy's oh, yeah. a perv yeah fucking divorce him well it does make me think given his that he was willing to grab a 19 year old at gunpoint and that he murdered this woman that there was probably more abuse going on in the home whether or not it was sexual or physical or just uh, that he was intimidating I'm sure there was some sort of dynamic there I would have killed him yeah that's just me <laughs> Not wanting to go through the rigmarole of a trial, Dennis asked for a detective. He then confessed to being drunk and sneaking into the back window using the wood block. His plan was to just steal what he could, but upon finding Kathleen, he decided to assault and then stab her. You may recall he couldn't be in court for the kidnapping and attempted rape of the 19-year-old girl just five days prior to Kathleen's murder as he was assigned to a two-week naval drill. Records showed he was indeed assigned to the USS Piedmont in Norfolk, Virginia. Given his violent history, there was now a pressure campaign from Dennis's wife and the courts for him to tell what really happened to Andrea. So they were still together, but now she's like, okay, what happened? She probably knew from that day. He must have been hurting her. Yeah. Because the minute he's arrested, now she's right. all for it. Right. Looking at his records, police discovered Dennis had been arrested in 1999 for breaking and entering into a co-worker's home with the goal of stealing her lingerie. When they tracked him down, they searched his home. In it, they found a duffel bag containing lingerie, a black sweatshirt, a black ski mask, and a short-barreled shotgun. He was sentenced for that act to one year. The pressure campaign worked and Dennis cracked. Sticking with part of the story he had told all those years ago, he claimed that he did come home and Andrea was in a part of the house that she was not supposed to be in, whatever that means, and she was packing a bag. He told her that she couldn't leave and she fought back, saying she would again report that he was molesting her. There's no way to know what really happened, but as he said, no, you won't, he either accidentally pushed or intentionally pushed or perhaps punched her down the stairs. His reporting of the incident varied. After landing at the bottom of the stairs, she was crumpled up and moaning, and then she ended up almost pinned against a door jamb, so he pulled her legs so she could lay straight. And when he did that, he saw that she had what looked like doll's eyes, and she was dead. A likely story. He's a very believable guy. Yeah. Although I do think that there was maybe a, a nugget to that, that he was so enraged from her saying, I'm going to tell people that maybe he threw her down the stairs or did hit her and something. Instead of calling for help, you know, like having the medics come to help her and then lying, saying that she just fell, it seems that he had a secret to protect. So he instead put her on a tarp and took her out to the barn on their property. He then came up with a plan. He would put her body in a barrel and bury the barrel in their yard. As he started to implement that plan, he realized she wouldn't fit in the barrel. So he took an axe and cut off her legs so that she would. <sighs> he... I, I cannot imagine him just even in in a rage pushing her down the stairs. He's just much too violent. Yeah. Much too violent. Yeah. Or he was attacking her at the top of the stairs or strangling her. And then she tried to get away and fell or something. But he is upsettingly violent on every level. When the couple moved shortly after, he went and dug up the barrel, reburying it in the backyard of their new home in Hamilton. So he he brought her? Well, he didn't want to leave. I think paranoia. Like, he didn't want to risk. That's so disturbing. If someone moves into your new house and wants to, you know, make a garden or something, you can't risk 
the barrel being found. So he then covered that spot with a concrete slab, which seems to be the go-to for these guys, and went about his life for another 40 years, killing at least one more woman and robbing another. Who knows how many more victims of Dennis Bauman's there are. Armed with this information, authorities went to that property. They located the concrete slab, dug it up, and uncovered skeletal remains. It took a while to get the ID confirmed, but they were the remains of 14-year-old Andrea Bowman. For the murder of Kathleen Doyle, Dennis admitted to first-degree murder, burglary with intent, and rape. He was sentenced to two life sentences. Even though he confessed to killing Andrea, he pleaded no contest to the second-degree murder charge. The no-contest plea is the same as a conviction. The charges could have earned him a life sentence, but the guidelines would have allowed for him to get paroled in as early as 15 years. Instead, the 70-year-old was given a 35- to 50-year sentence but it's one he'll never serve. That sentence was for Andrea's death in Michigan, but he's currently serving the two life sentences in Virginia for Kathleen's murder. So unless there is some sort of overturning of that charge, he will die in the Sussex II State Prison in Virginia. Should he be released for some reason, he will not be free. He will then be extradited to Michigan to spend the remainder of his life up there. So either way, he will rightfully rot and die in prison. So did they ever do an autopsy on her remains to confirm his story? I didn't see anything about an autopsy. And I don't know if because it was just skeletal or. But you'd see trauma on the bones if she really did fall down the stairs. Oh, yeah, that's true. If her neck was broken. Yeah. And I wonder, too, in the dismemberment, was it only her legs? Was it hard for them to differentiate between that and like a fatal injury? Uh, But yeah, unfortunately, I never saw an autopsy report. Kathy Turkanian, her birth mother, had felt for years that Dennis had been involved with the death of her daughter. Speaking about the ordeal, she said, well, honestly, it just validates this horrible feeling I've had all along. It doesn't really do a whole lot for me. I really, truly wish I had been wrong about this. That would mean that she would be alive. So in a lot of really horrible ways, it validates for me. It also, in a lot of good ways, validates for me, I'm not just some crazy person that is imagining this. What I thought in his background really was something to stand up and be alerted about. Since the recovery of Andrea's body, her birth mother has been fighting to get custody of her remains. I was unable to find an update regarding that, but I hope she was, at the very least, granted that. I doubt it, unfortunately. That's rough. That's really rough. You think you're putting your child... To yeah. a better life. Yeah, you're saying, I recognize that I'm not capable or I'm not financially able, mm-hmm. like whatever it is, hoping for the best. That's a really hard thing to have to live with and think about. Yeah. That's so sad. Thank goodness those cops were talking to each other, that oh, they paid yeah. attention to those names, that they paid attention to those cases. So often I think about that and I'm like, how, like, I don't remember all of our cases because, well, I have a horrible memory and I'm bad with names. But to be able to recall those details so that crossing paths with someone you get to talking and that happens to come up. Well, we have detectives we've talked to that they they bring that work home and they think about yeah. them like they're their own family. So it's it's nice that they take it so seriously. Yeah. It just seems impossible because of the number, the sheer yeah. number, you know. But thank goodness for the kismet of them bumping into each other and bringing up his name and the fact that they were like, well, we've got his DNA from this thing and oh, well, we've got something we want to test. It goes to show networking works. Yeah. 
finally, not only herself, but also Kathleen found justice and, and at least had some answers. Bernice Espinoza is a name listed as having been featured on one of the versions of the Runaway Train video. Her name is literally all I can find. She was listed as being missing since 1992. Hopefully, information is unavailable because she was found and went home or was safe. Darlene Michelle Hungerford is another name where there is simply no information. She was featured in a later version of the video, but there was nothing else available. Again, all hopes are that she returned home safely. Sadly, the story is the same for Heather Lee Yagel. For this next case, I did request the public records, but California likes to keep it complicated, especially regarding an older case, so unfortunately I was unable to get them. Heading now to Blue Lake, California in Humboldt County, this next case might be the most frustrating of them all. Not only were concerns ignored, but the justice simply was not served. Curtis Anthony Hunsinger was born August 23, 1974 in Los Angeles. He had a busy home with parents Charles and Nancy and siblings Debbie, Howard, Chuck, Craig, Cindy, Sherry, Georgia, George, Bob, Sarah, Louie, and Joe. Wow. If you're doing the math, that's 14 children. Oof. Attending Arcata High School in 1990, the 14-year-old freshman enjoyed his family above all. With so many siblings, he had plenty of nieces and nephews. With a love of babies, he was always the first to hold his newest family members. He loved having family barbecues in the backyard or going on picnics. His big smile was contagious, his wit was sharp, and his humor was used to ham it up to make others laugh or to add silliness to a photo. Holidays were his favorite. He adored the 4th of July spent on the Mad River, finding the prize egg on Easter, opening presents on Christmas. Curtis could always find a reason to celebrate. Not everything was perfect in his young life, though. In the spring of 1990, he was working for a family friend named Stephen Daniel Hash, who also lived just a couple of blocks away. Stephen was 35 years old at the time. It was May of that year when everything changed. Nancy and Charles were having dinner with their friend, Stephen, when Charles noticed something strange coming in from a window. Thinking it was a broomstick at first, he was shocked when he realized it was the barrel of a rifle. On the other side of the gun was Curtis, aiming it at Stephen. He tried to fire, but the gun failed. If only it hadn't. Frantic and confused, the parents asked Stephen to leave, and they talked to Curtis, asking him what the hell he was thinking. He said, It's Steve, Mom. It's Steve. Unsure of what to do to help her son, Nancy reported the allegations to the United Indian Health Services. They are a government agency providing health care of many kinds to the indigenous community. They then made a report to the police. On May 11th, Stephen was questioned by an officer, but he denied any allegations, telling the officer he wasn't gay. Now that the truth about Stephen's abuse had been out for a couple of weeks, Curtis's family noticed he was becoming even more introverted and removed. On May 18th, Curtis was hanging out at an older sister's home in the Blue Lake area, which sits 10 miles from the Pacific Ocean, 130 miles west of Redding. His sister, Cindy, was the last to see him alive. She remembers him sitting on her couch, looking alone and somber. In an interview, she said, I remember leaving to go somewhere and looking back just before I shut the door. Our eyes met. His face was sad, his countenance dim. 
There was no clown, no silliness or light in his eyes. I've regretted shutting that door for 19 years. He was killed that night. With Curtis's admission of what Steve had been doing to him, suddenly all of his behavior over the last year and a half made sense. He had become sullen. He was having trouble in school. His grades were plummeting. Then legal trouble when he stole chips from a delivery truck and vandalized a window. Even though the police knew of the reported sexual abuse, they attributed Curtis's behavior to being a naughty teen, and therefore they could just, say it with me now, classify him as a runaway. What's nice about listing children as runaways is that you don't have to devote any manpower into solving the case. As usual, this is just so upsetting. 14 is so young. The fact that these children are going through puberty or have gotten taller so they look older is such a disgusting reason to dismiss concerns from family members that something bad happened to their child. Because of the dismissal, it was months before there was even acknowledgement that something else could have transpired. Even then, nothing happened regarding Curtis's case for three years. Feeling like they were the indigenous family with a lot of kids and were therefore expendable, the family planned a protest. On May 4th, Curtis's friends and family protested the lack of investigative support in front of the Blue Lake City Hall. Hundreds of people stood by their side demanding answers regarding what happened to Curtis. Because protests do get things done, they can frequently be referred to as riots by officials. Rioters are bad and can be ignored. Protesters, like Curtis's family, can't be. Just 10 days after that protest, the new chief, Ken McKinney, announced that they would be forming a task force that would focus solely on Curtis's case. That was a huge win for the family, but sadly, the task force only lasted three months. In August, they claimed there was no evidence of foul play being involved in Curtis's disappearance or his rumored possible death. At her breaking point, Nancy put a gun in her pocket and walked to Stephen's home. She was planning on shooting him, which, if she had, you know she would have not only been arrested immediately, but would have been given some insane sentence like 400 years or something. As she stood outside his door, a car pulled into the driveway and she was scared off. It wasn't until April 24, 1999, that someone confessed to knowing what had happened to Curtis. January 1st, 1997 was the last time anyone saw 11-year-old Thomas Williams, who went by Danny. Just 16 miles to the west of Blue Lake is Eureka, where Danny lived. After not being seen for two days, a missing persons report was filed. I'll get to why there was a delay in just a moment. Sadly, his mother and loved ones had an answer as to his location just three days later, when a man riding his bike near Pleasanton saw something in a white sheet off the side of the road. Looking closer, it was clearly a partially dressed deceased child. Though it wouldn't be confirmed to be Danny until that Tuesday, everyone knew it was him. They didn't know who was to blame, but they did know Danny had been beaten, having abrasions on his legs, arms, torso, and head, and he had been dumped after having died at another location. Investigators, of course, spoke with Danny's mother about his whereabouts during that time. On New Year's Day, Anita, his mother, dropped him off at the downstairs apartment in a home they used to live in. Their downstairs neighbor, Thomas Fox, was hosting a 14-year-old friend of Danny's. She had taken him there to play with that boy. She went back on the 2nd to pick him up, and that's when red flags were raised. Thomas was supposedly very ill and had a woman in the home as a hired caregiver. When Anita asked for her son, the woman informed her that Danny was asleep in a bedroom. That bedroom was where Thomas was sleeping, and the door was locked. Ew. 
Yeah. You, 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 you. Anita was banging on the door, but no one answered on the other side. When she persisted, someone else told her that Danny had actually left the home on his bicycle. The next day, Anita filed the missing persons report. It took until the remains were confirmed as Danny's for a plan to raid Thomas's home to be put in motion. But on the 7th, they were able to do that. In the process, they found many pieces of child sex abuse materials. The photos had been taken in different locations, but it was clear the victims, mostly boys, had been drugged and stripped of their clothing. Thomas was immediately arrested and held on a $5 million bond. Do we know why there was a delay in the report being filed? Like, why, why didn't she call police immediately? Or did she? She So, yeah, so she dropped him off for New Year's, goes back to get him. They say, oh, he's back here and then can't find him. And then someone, I was unable to get specific if it was that caregiver or someone else in the neighborhood that was like, oh, he left on his bike. So... I don't know if she just assumed it would be a 24-hour wait or if Mm. she spent that time, okay, if he left on his bike, did he go here, go here, go here? Or maybe even denial, you know, if someone's missing, you're like, well, they're not like that kind of missing. I don't have to call yet. So I think it was some sort of combination of that. And then she's like, okay, he still hasn't come home. Something's going on. With the discovery of what was confirmed to be Danny's body, the autopsy revealed he had been killed by a chloroform overdose. Chloroform is so dangerous and deadly, it isn't available without a license, although it can, somewhat easily, be made with household chemicals. The incredibly sweet and pleasant-smelling chemical can be a killer at just 1.5 ounces. Even if breathing it doesn't kill you right away, the effects can eventually cause your heart to stop. On the 10th, 35-year-old Thomas Michael Fox was charged with Danny's murder— 106 counts of felony child abuse, administering drugs to commit a felony, and using minors to produce child sex abuse materials. While his crimes warranted a death penalty sentence, the district attorney wasn't going to pursue it because Thomas was not only terminal with cancer, but he was HIV positive. He wasn't going to live long enough to see a death penalty come to fruition. A sentence of more than a couple of years was most likely going to be a death sentence. He was given a life sentence for killing Danny and for creating, then selling, those images. In April 1999, in what authorities felt was an attempt to right some wrongs before he was dead, Thomas had a confession to make. He claimed that three other men were part of his Polaroid selling ring, and one of those men was Stephen Hash, Curtis's neighbor and accused abuser. He also confessed that in Stephen's house, Thomas shot and killed Curtis. He went on to say that those men helped him hide the body and he could direct detectives to that location. Wow. This admission led to a search with the help of a canine team of Stevens' home. No evidence was uncovered that made authorities believe that a murder had taken place in the home or that Stephen was involved. That didn't mean people didn't think he wasn't part of that group of men attacking young boys, but there just wasn't sufficient proof of any of it. In an effort to clear her son as being a victim, Nancy was forced to look through all of the photos Thomas had been in possession of. Curtis had not been photographed, so Thomas's confession was dismissed. A month later, fed up with the lack of resolution, Nancy approached Stephen on April 24th. Falling to her knees and crying, she begged of him that he tell her where the body was. She even promised not to go to authorities, saying, I'll dig him up. I won't tell anyone. She just wanted to know where he was and to hold him again. Looking a mother in the eyes and hearing her forgive him, Stephen, too, fell to his knees and cried. Stephen said, Okay, give me a few days to take care of some things. 
After those few days, he took her to what he claimed was her son's burial site. She didn't see any immediate signs of her son's remains. Stephen then asked for an additional 24 hours before she reported things. He wanted to be able to get things in order and then take his life. Nancy would not let him do that. She drove the man that had basically confessed to killing her child to church and had him baptized. What the fuck? Don't waste your time on these people, people. But I think if you're desperate to find a body and you hope that maybe grace and love and compassion keeps him around. Because, you know, what if he says it's over Nine there? Nine times out of ten, it doesn't happen, though, you know? That's true. But if you're desperate and, like, he's saying it's over here, but you're not seeing anything and he says he's going to kill himself, I don't know. I think yeah, I'd be panicked to be like, okay, how do I make you calm? How do I make it so you you don't do that in case he's not there, in case it's somewhere else? Yeah. Waiting the 24 hours, she reported everything to police and they went back to his house, taking flooring and carpeting samples for testing. Another team scoured the area he claimed to have buried Curtis. Bones were found at the scene, but they were all determined to be animal remains. When the police asked him about what had transpired with Nancy, he was uncooperative. Searches went on for weeks. Nothing of substance was recovered. The FBI was involved even for a short period. They, too, were unable to connect Stephen to Curtis. Once Chief Gunderson took over the case, he and his wife made multiple broken promises to the Hutzinger family. They were going to solve the case in 60 days. They were going to do whatever it took to do so. They were tracking Stephen, who had since moved 175 miles to Ukiah. Not trusting the only officials she was permitted to talk to about her son's case, Nancy called the Ukiah police asking about Stephen Hash. They had no record of him living there. The Blue Lake area is a tiny community. In the early 2000s, it had a population of just 1,150 people. The police force was a measly four officers. You'd think with such a small town and four of the residents being accused of sex trafficking, the four-person team could really focus on solving Curtis's case. Instead, they had to deal with a case from within their own ranks. You'd be right to think that a town of such a small size wouldn't have much crime to contend with. Most people in Blue Lake felt it was safe. Police Chief Gunderson felt otherwise. Gunderson had recently lost his job in Adelanto after being accused of theft. In 1999, he became the chief in Blue Lake, and things quickly changed. He was passive-aggressive, cold, and overall unlikable. He would go to the city council and report huge increases in property crimes, burglaries, and car thefts. No one fought back, but it was clear this was all just an effort to get a bigger budget. He also changed how his small squad interacted with community members. Soon, his officers were racially profiling foreign students— Residents brought lawsuits claiming improper accusations. A local man was charged after putting out a donation jar at his extravagant birthday party. What was that donation thing you said? Uh, that he had a, this guy, a local guy had a big birthday party. And at the party, he put out a donation jar. Hmm. And, he, and he got charged. Silly. Yeah. So no one was liking this guy. The chief. Well, I don't either. <laughs> Right? Why do you get the yeah. job in the first place? Were they desperate? I would think probably, yeah, a small town or if they're just uh, doing what they do in schools, the turkey trot, where they just shuffle. shuffle. Well, we don't really want to fire you. It's a big pain in the ass. We'll just put you somewhere where it won't matter, this little town. Everyone in town who read this guy as a douche was right on the money. 
In February 2008, he was charged with 33 counts, including eight felonies surrounding his ownership of 111 guns of varying sizes and calibers, some of which were not registered. In addition, there were charges for drugging and raping his wife, who was also a cop, witness tampering, possession of a machine gun with a silencer, violation of a court order, possession of a controlled substance, and unauthorized disclosure of information. Wow. That's their police chief. That's straight out of, uh, what's that movie with Matt Damon? I fucking love that movie. Oh, Departed. The Departed. Mm Mm-hmm. It was found that some of his weapons had actually been used to barter with other police forces, as in, I'll give you a few new automatic rifles if you give me a radar gun kind of thing. Before going to trial, the rape charge and two of the misdemeanors were dismissed. He eventually went to trial and was found guilty of being in possession of a submachine gun and silencer and for violating a court order. He was also found guilty of battery, which involved him taking photos of his fellow officer wife as she was sleeping. Even though there was no denying he was guilty of doing that, it was discovered the statute of limitations had expired, so those charges were also dropped. I don't want to do this. Is it illegal to do that? Like, can you take a picture of your sleeping spouse? Or was he like, was he violating her too? I feel like there may have been more to the story that, yeah. Yeah, yeah there, the there, again, because I couldn't get the case documents. Oh, I see. Uh, so I'm not quite clear. I don't, I'm not sure if it's like. I think it has to do with the rape. Yeah, I was going to say if it's if if she's saying that he's drugging her and Mm -hmm. raping her, that perhaps the photos were taken while she was drugged and unconscious or maybe he was selling them or giving them to people. That is so disturbing. Yeah, it's he's disgusting. It's yet another reason to lock my door and not have a mate. Well, so do I even need to tell you what his sentence was? Uh, I have probation. Yeah. Time. Time. Served. Time served. He was given two two year sentences which would run concurrently of course. and were promptly suspended, which oh. we've talked about before, which basically means, OK, you've got this sentence, but you don't have to go to prison and do it. It's we'll just, just let you record. know if we decide to make that happen. But just I think really it means if you do something again, it's going to be a harsher punishment. Yeah. But we're going to let you go ahead and get away with it as an officer of the law. As the chief. That is so disturbing and disgusting you are the chief i don't care if it's new york or troutdale you are the chief of police you are the top thing you are the example and that's exactly why he's like i can do whatever i Uh want and no one cares because i'm gonna cover it up and on top of that he was given 354 days in jail but as he had already been held for almost that exact amount of time he was given time served There was also four years probation, but if I had to guess, he wasn't exactly tightly monitored. Even though he got away with not much more than a slap on the wrist, he still appealed the gun and silencer convictions. His argument was that as an officer, there was an exception to the rule and his possession of such was fully within the scope of his position. He needed it for the raping of his wife. Right. Fucking dick. Those appeals were made in 2012. His team argued that he was one of the four officers and was expected to take a call at any time. The state argued that while the possession of the weapons could very well fit in the scope of what the police department deemed acceptable, Gunderson didn't acquire the weapons through an official channel. No one on the squad had been trained for their use, nor were they registered. I was unable to find an outcome regarding that appeal, but it wasn't like he was like so many of color who have been wrongfully convicted trying to get out of a life sentence, he just didn't want his law breaking to keep him from getting a job where he was above the law. 
With his arrest, there were two remaining officers on the force. Because they had no leadership, they weren't technically allowed to remain on the street. They were forced into being desk jockeys. So no one was working on Curtis's case or the man who everyone knew had been to blame, Stephen. How do you not have another plan in place like FBI steps in or another county takes over? Like that is so bizarre. Well, on that note, the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office did step in to cover the Blue Lake area. Fortunately, the Humboldt County DA took over Curtis's case. Unlike previous leadership, they were honest with his mom saying, I can't tell you we'll find the body, but I can tell you we will try. DA investigator Wayne Cox happened to see Curtis's file on a colleague's desk in 2007. Since it didn't have any traction, he was welcome to take the file home. He did, and for a year, he read every piece of information available. When Chief Gunderson was arrested and the police force disbanded, Curtis's case was in limbo, which allowed for investigator Cox to request that the DA's office not only take over the case, but provide him with whatever resources he was needing. With help from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, Cox was able to put the disaster of a case file together in an organized manner. Going through the documents, he found one that had previously been ignored. Stephen's ex-wife had been interviewed by the FBI, and she claimed that he told her in graphic detail about murdering Curtis. She had even been in family court and had shared the same information, but it was never followed up on. Also found was a photo taken four years after Curtis went missing. In the photo, you can see the wall in the house. On the wall is a calendar. Next to it, also hanging on the wall, were photos of Curtis. The evidence wasn't strong, but it was obvious by then that Stephen had at least been involved in Curtis's disappearance. Deciding to go for it, they were able to ask for him to be charged with murder, even without Curtis's body. On December 3, 2008, Cox and two other officers drove 240 miles south to Sebastopol, where they would speak with Stephen, unconventionally, at a Starbucks. They were hoping that the fear of being charged with murder would leave room for a plea deal as long as they were able to get Curtis's body back to his family. As the group spoke, Stephen soon caught on to what they were doing. You're BSing me. You want me to tell on myself. You're just like everybody else. You don't have anything on me or you would have already arrested me. You know, what every innocent person says. (laughs) That's when Cox showed his cards. He went out to his car and brought in the warrant that had been issued for Stephen for the murder of Curtis. He said, still think we're BSing you? After a few minutes of silence, Stephen stood up and said, I'll take you to him. Before leaving, the investigative team wanted answers, so they asked for the details of what happened before they went to recover the body. For the next hour and a half, Stephen told his side of the story. On the night of the 18th, possibly planning to finish what he had intended to do a few weeks prior, Curtis went to Stephen's house. He was angry. Being let in, the 35-year-old man and his 14-year-old victim started arguing, which turned into a physical fight. Looking for a weapon, Stephen grabbed a barbell and bashed it across Curtis's face. His skull was crushed. Stephen then buried the body off Old Highway 299. After nearly 20 years, Curtis's killer had been caught but it seemed impossible to find his small body in such a large area after so many years. The biggest issue concerning the search was how different the area was from when Curtis had been buried there. In 1990, there had been extensive clear-cutting and burning. Now in 2008, the forest was reclaiming the land. Poison oak and blackberry bushes were abundant. 
Hoping to narrow down their efforts, Stephen once again pointed out where he had buried Curtis. Hopes of finding his body were fleeting as Stephen went to the same area he had shown Nancy all those years before. The teams had searched that area and found nothing, so they weren't sure what would make things different this time. The search team may have been hesitant, but Nancy held on to her optimism. So did Wayne Cox. He gave the order, I don't care if we have to dig up this mountain, we'll do it. We will move a mountain. The first day turned up nothing, same for the second and third. What had been accomplished was that dozens of volunteers had helped to move some of the difficult brush out of the way. A few of the people on the search team were using metal detectors, hoping Chris's zipper would help them narrow down a search area. One man, Danny Walker, was out helping as he was the local metal detector guy. He had a personal collection and detecting was his hobby. Since he had the most experience, he was given the newest, most advanced detector on loan from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Swinging the detector back and forth, he couldn't believe it when he heard a faint beep. Dropping to his knees, Danny began sweeping dirt away and he quickly revealed Curtis's femur. As much as it seemed that this would have been a cause for celebration, that Curtis was finally going home, everyone was struck with the reality of the situation. They were gathered around what had been 14-year-old Curtis's burial site for the last 18 years. Before doing more digging, the search team removed themselves and gave the family time to grieve. Being indigenous, they offered the earth tobacco as a token of their appreciation for her caring and for watching over his body for so long. Because of the landscape, excavating the body was not going to be an easy task. The surrounding trees that grew after the clearing of the area didn't have much nourishment, so the roots were drawn to Curtis's remains, which were just two feet beneath the soil. The roots swarmed around him, encasing him in a tangled ball. It took many workers many hours to dig out the 400-pound ball of roots. Whoa. The ball was then taken to the anthropology department at Humboldt State, where they were able to slowly and carefully separate his body from the roots. Amazingly, every bone was recovered, and they were able to confirm his identity through dental records. And it hadn't been a zipper that had set off the metal detector. It had been Curtis's calculator watch, which was still around his wrist. Even more amazing, knowing now what had happened to her boy, Nancy felt such relief she asked Cox to let Stephen go. She hadn't been concerned with justice. She just wanted to hold her boy one last time and tell him goodbye. While that is a nearly unbearable amount of grace a mother could grant her son's killer, Cox informed her that just letting him go wasn't something they could do. Though he did acknowledge that if it hadn't been for Stephen's remorse and pointing them within a few feet of the burial site, they never would have found Curtis. In the end, Nancy basically got her wish. Taking a plea deal, Stephen Hash pled guilty to manslaughter, which had him facing a maximum sentence of 11 years. Which is why, you know, that whole law I have of whatever time lost negates your time served. So instead of 11 years, he should have had at least 18 for the time that the family was wondering what had happened to their son. During the court proceedings, Stephen made a statement. In it, he thanked the investigators for their great detective skills. He apologized to Nancy, and he wondered aloud why he had been able to walk freely for nearly 20 years. Stephen looked to Nancy and said, I love you. As he was taken away, she murmured, go to hell. Although Nancy said she didn't care about the consequences Stephen would face, other members of Curtis's family felt differently. Many of them thought that the 11-year sentence and $9,000 restitution fine was far from adequate. 
Stephen Hash was able to be charged with manslaughter because he claimed he got into an argument with someone else, which led to him hitting them and hiding the body. But it's not like this was with another grown man. This was a 14-year-old child who was a victim of Stephen's sexual abuse. There's no telling what he said that night Curtis approached Stephen. Curtis may have threatened his life. He may have threatened to go to the police. Whatever it was, the 35-year-old predator crushed that boy's head, hid him haphazardly in the woods, and left his family and friends to suffer daily pain for 18 years. Which is why it's even more upsetting to learn it is possible that he was paroled at just five and a half years. Even if he served the full sentence, he would have been released in 2019. Stephen is 65 years old now, and it appears he is still living in the Blue Lake area. Since that last bit of info has us all upset, here's some poetic justice. It appears Thomas Michael Fox, the man who killed Danny, was a pedophile and pointed the finger at Stephen, the man who also wasn't going to face the death penalty because of his health being so bad, so he was just going to die within a few years. Yeah, that piece of shit. He started his time in San Quentin, and he now resides at the Valley State Prison. That's right, he is still alive and suffering in prison. So at least someone in the situation got what they deserved. Yuck. Yuck. Lots of yuck. Lots of missed signals. Ignored signals. Maybe not missed. Just feels like such deprioritization. Well, and on one hand, you can say, okay, if you have this tiny town and you only have four cops, they probably aren't going to have either the skill set, the training, or the tools. That's why you shouldn't be doing investigations like that you know they should have people who are trained for it and prepared for it yeah or at least say oh this will stay with the sheriff's office or this will stay with state police and have a detective on it not just kind of shuffle around to whatever corrupt leader comes into place to look at it or not look at it and it also makes you wonder in such a small town and this is so pre-internet how many people were privy to what those guys were doing. Mm -hmm. Were there, of those four cops, there's a possibility that at least one of them either knew of or was involved in or purchased from those guys. Yeah. So maybe not going to put the same effort into catching them if they're your supplier of sorts. That was a doozy. Yeah. But I think think these, these have been incredibly interesting. I've always wondered about these kids from the video. And wanted to know, like, what the outcome was. And there's just such a variety that it's, I don't know. It's so to depressing, take, It's so depressing. But to take, like, a sample of just 20 kids from the database, from the national database. Yeah. And just these of these 20 stories, 21 stories. When you think about shows like Unsolved Mysteries, like, how, how we get caught up in them. And we love the update episodes and going back and revisiting to see what's been solved. It's it's nice because this was such a big video in our adolescence. Yeah. And just to have some of those answers or not to be like, wow, that person whose face I can still recall, they still don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. And it still has, you know, 30 years later, it still has that... Um, that scary factor to it of just and just not knowing I I I just I think I would go insane if I had a loved one just disappear from home but so I imagine it's harder than knowing what happened I I think so too I mean obviously thank goodness we have no idea because we're not in that scenario but I do feel like I would much rather know that I could lay someone to rest than to be like 
did they wander off? Did Wilda end up in just like, a, you know, a bog or an Everglade or something because she was on medication? Or was it something so much worse? You know, so anyway, so I appreciate everybody uh, being on board with this because, uh, yeah, they're, they're heartbreaking. And I've already covered like the one that was sort of a good story, which was that she went back home. But yeah, we've got we've got more of them to cover. Uh, yeah, more more to come of those stories. Well, there is an L in there. Do you have to? It is, but I don't know if you I feel pronounce like I, it. I feel like I can hear it in my head, and I don't know how to say it out my mouth. Don't let me down, Lou Tube. Lube Tube is like a full-on 9-11 person. Yeah. Oh, that's so gross. She just like kept... I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Isn't it yeah. funny when you, you have that realization moment with a person, and you're like, oh, what have I done? What have I unlocked? I am scared. We were together for a bit before that came out, and I was like, yeah, what do you do? Well, you just keep on going and then well, get married and then get yeah, divorced. I would have broken up. Say <laughs> burglarize. Thank you. I can't. I can't. I don't I don't want to. Did you have Burgle in your head? Because we watched that movie Carrie 2 starring Emily Burgle. <laughs> That's that probably what it, it was. Josh, that it was last night. I don't know. She's going to become a conspiracy theorist just to spite you. Yeah. Well, good. I'll stay with her regardless until it <laughs> totally falls apart. She has no boundaries. <laughs> I'm just giving up. Oh, I'm sorry that you don't like my attitude. I love your attitude. I'm sorry that you can't deal with it. You know, like she gets stronger when people don't like her attitude. That's true. <laughs> She's very <Feels> strong. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, my mic was off. She's very strong. She grows more power mm -hmm. with each time somebody says, I don't like your attitude. Yeah, it's like, oh, you don't like that one? How about this one? <laughs> and I up it. Anyway, never oh, mind. Boy. Forget it. Just Speaking stop. of. <laughs> just to confirm, we were correct about this? Yes, you were right. Okay, okay. Just to make sure. Just to confirm we were right, right? Okay, cool. As always. Our, our record isn't tarnished. <laughs> it remains practically perfect. <laughs> just like me. Pronunciate the spelling of that word. What is it? Arcata? A R C A T A. Yep. Arcata. You thought he was going to catch you one more time. No, no, no. I just wanted to. <laughs> I was hoping so. <laughs> you were ready. <laughs> I looked it up, bitch. Well, there's well, another, another point. Tack. Well, there we go. And just to confirm, <laughs> I was right. Okay, good. Arcata. They'll, they would realize it was a mistake. Oh, yeah. That oh, I would so tell them right up. away. I'd be like, oh, they're, oh, uh-huh. Give me a manager. So uncomfortable. <laughs> These beans are cold. <laughs> <laughs> Say it with me now. Oh, I don't know what I'm saying. Gunderson. Gunderson. <laughs> Gunderson had recently oh, lost his Your job. puberty kicked in. That's Good. right. Finally. Atalanta. 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 <laughs> Get me my Atalanta, Ooh, my heartburn's acting up. So where's... I would say that the, so now the numbers what? thing was bad, but the other so now part... what? You said the month well. <laughs> Try it again, the girl. The numbers, very bad. You did it once, you can do it again. Nope. American and baloney. With help from the... <laughs> That's why you did it. <laughs> I knew. You knew it was... You I'm really big into manifestation. <laughs> <laughs>
What about a man fest, Josh? <laughs> it's funny because when you're writing it, you're like, oh, I've written Runaway Train like a hundred times. hundred times. How dare you? <laughs> I thought I could get away with it. <laughs> I thought we could move on. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>